the words could kill. This poem is full of blood, fornication, guts, and guns. This poem hates nationalists, sexists, racists, factionalists, and fundamentalists of all else. However, this poem encourages creative lives when those lives are in service to this poem's politics. Uh, this poem, this poem, this poem is about starvation in Ethiopia, tribal warfare in Rwanda, ethnic cleansing in Yugoslavia, oil workers striking in Nigeria, starvation, reclassification, indoctrination, stagnation, and the return of the colonialists to oversee our freedom. This poem, this poem, this poem is about moving and grooving, but you going nowhere about moving and grooving, but you going nowhere about moving and grooving, but you going nowhere, going nowhere, going nowhere, nowhere, nowhere. nowhere. The first time I laid ears on Alice Lovelace, she was standing in bright blue lights on a stage in Atlanta, Georgia. She was a diminutive presence in the delicate white dress who from the second she began to speak literally took over the theater. This poem, this poem, this poem is about arming for peace while withholding food until those ungodly whores recognize the salvation of capitalist ideas. This poem is about salvation of Russia, not the unification of Europe, not the liberation of Africa, not. This poem shits on other poems. This poem is about psycho babble posing as art and art so fucking pure no things. This poem, this poem, this poem is about dropping bombs on Iraq for border aggressions while patting the serves on the back. About boycotting Cuba because they won't be like us while rewarding China referring to it as spoken word back then, but as far as I was concerned, at that moment, in that space, it was the word, and that word was commanding, no, grabbing my attention as though the lyrics to that screaming Jay Hawkins song were coming true. I put a spell on you. This poem, this poem, this poem, this poem is about my need, my need to write poetry while the people starve. Since then, we've become friends, colleagues, collaborators, yes, but I have to say that spell, that power to teach the moment, to help you see life's vexing puzzle pieces in a new way that reveals something hot, something that will feed you, well, that power is still there. If you don't believe me, 
then just listen up. Story, story, story. This is Change the Story, Change the World, a chronicle of art and community transformation. My name is Bill Cleveland. Alice and I held our conversation over two days in early 2021. We started with me as the guest on her new podcast, from the Arts Exchange in Atlanta, and then we zoomed on over here to the Center for the Study of Art and Community to record this episode, part one, Organizing is a Tool of Culture. Hey, Alice Lovelace, there you are. I see you. <laughs> Good to see you again. You haven't aged a bit since yesterday. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I, I want to thank you for just a, a marvelous conversation. And I, I just I'm excited that you're doing this show. T- tell me a little bit about the show before we start into our, our regular interview. What where did it come from? So do the Arts Exchange in yes. Atlanta. So which yes. is an organization that I helped to found back in 83, 84. We are still going strong. I actually got retired, went back on the board and sold a building in Grant Park, bought a building in East Point, renovated it. And moved us in there. Once the virus hit, we had to go viral with everything online. And so they came to me a couple of months ago and asked me what I'd do a a podcast. Because we'd been doing some little conversations, but they thought that this might build build on that audience and expand it. And so I said, oh, sure, I'll do the podcast. I I don't know why they pick a person as shy as you to do it, though. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I have to hold back my enthusiasm sometimes. <laughs> and actually, I found the same thing. I miss being with my brothers and sisters so badly. And it's just a breath of fresh air to be able to have conversations with people about things other than how bad it is. That with this medium, they can be anywhere, like you said, in the country or in the world. And that That's really expands the palette. It's great. It is. I'm looking forward to reaching out to a lot of people. Some I know and some I don't know. Right. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Let me begin. It's interesting. I have a good friend named Sandy Augustine, and she was a principal over there at uh, Intermedia Arts in in Minneapolis. She's a wonderful Mm -hmm. artist. And uh, she's one of the first people I interviewed. And I said, Sandy, do do you have a street name? She says, yeah, yeah, I got a handle. And, And I said, so... Is it connected to your work? She said, oh, yeah, absolutely. They call me the navigator. So, Alice, if you had one or if you do have one, what would your handle be? What would your street name be? It's not a street name. It's one that I only use discreetly, but I think it's one that really defines how I move. And that is I am a disruptor. Uh-huh. You want to say more and, about and that, what that means? Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of people take that in a negative way. But I am never happy with the status quo. So I'm always looking for ways to disrupt the status quo and to move it in a a more progressive or or empowering those whom I see are being left behind. And that has to happen a lot. There have to be those who make other people uncomfortable so that in their discomfort, they actually deeply contemplate change. Because when we are comfortable, we don't contemplate change. So. So I know that I am a disruptor. I'm a peaceful disruptor. I don't get loud. I don't but I definitely look for opportunities to shift power and to shift the conversation. The good trouble, nudge, poke. I'm not going away. This story will not disappear. Let's handle it in the best way possible. You know what it reminds me of? I, I think about 
you're a poet, you're an artist, you spend time with yourself. And my guess is a part of your practice is self-disruption. Yes. Yes, I'm always, I am hypercritical of myself. And, and particularly if I've been in a situation, I, I always go back and I have to ask, why did you do that? Why did you ask that question? Why did you think that was necessary? And yes. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm always in the place where when I get self-critical, it's usually like, Bill, I'm sorry, you have more imagination than that, but you know, I got to get going, right? Yeah. I think I'm always trying to make sure that what I've done wasn't out of destruction, that it mm. was out of some sense of a movement forward. Mm-hmm. And if I find myself having said something, I try to say, you can't address it that way. The next time you have to moderate this. So I try to get better at it the next time so that mm-hmm. maybe I get some positive changes out of it. Yeah. So for people who, who who don't know Alice Lovelace as a disruptor, what are your tools and how do you put them to, to use? I'm an organizer, first and foremost. I'm an organizer and I'm a cultural worker. And organizing is a tool of cultural work. Art is a tool of cultural work. These are the, the tools that I use to move society in different ways. I think people would be most surprised at breadth of the way that I work. Most people know me as a arts and education teacher for 35 years, traveling the country, teaching in jails, schools, churches, senior citizen homes, anywhere that, that they invite me. But then I'm also an organizer. So I was the national lead staff organizer for the first United States Social Forum, coordinated and did all the logistics for that. That was 11 locations, 15,000 people in attendance, 2,500 workshops. And I was the head organizer for all of that, that pulled that off and made it happen. But to, to me, all of this work is the same work, even running the arts exchange Managing the sale, managing the purchase of the new building, overseeing the renovations, all of that is a part of that cultural work of building culture, strengthening culture as a means of strengthening art. And I always remember that these two are intimately connected. So I'm always aware of the cultural environment that I'm in and what my art can do in that cultural environment and the role that I can play. And sometimes it's a supportive role. And sometimes if I don't see the leadership that will lead us to success, I will step in. So one of your other tools that is one of my favorite things that you do is you are an extraordinary writer. The first moment that I met you was seeing you uh, take over a stage and blow back the eyelids of the people in the audience with your spoken word. Could you talk a bit about your artistry and how that works? Again, it came out of organizing. I first started writing poetry when I, I slipped into a really serious depression, but I was only writing for myself. And one of the things that helped me when I began to merge out of it was going to teach at an Episcopal church. They had an after-school program for youth. And it was the very first time I ever did that. But I stepped in there and, and I said, I want to volunteer. And I started teaching a poetry class for young people. And watching them grow, it helped me understand that writing was all I wanted to do. That my depression was not so much a mental depression as it was not satisfying my own inner self. And from that point forward, I said I would never um, deny my voice and I would never deny myself that opportunity. But I never called myself a poet. I actually took great umbrage to people calling me a poet. I did not think it was an honorific. Mm. I am in the oral tradition and I come out of the oral tradition. I never would publish my poems for it. It took Tony K. Bombard to finally push me and push me 
to make me write poems down and, and publish them. I thought a poem should be brand new for every audience, that every audience deserved to hear something that was crafted for them and to be between me and them. And no, if you weren't there in that audience, then you couldn't share that experience. And, mm-hmm. and I didn't want you to have that experience. <laughs> but I, I began to, to morph over the years and, and, and more and more write down what I was writing and accepted that position. And then when I started teaching in state arts programs, I, I definitely embraced it. Tell me, you weren't born a poet and you weren't born, born an organizer, or maybe you were. But what, what was the path that led you to knowing that that was your purpose on this earth? See, it's two little stories. One was I was born in St. Louis, and I had the fortune of wonderful parents. I come from a very large family. My mother was my father's second wife. My father had 17 children. I was his 13th child. But we lived in a neighborhood, and directly across the street from my house, a half a block to my left was my elementary school. Directly in front of my house was a huge city recreation center, and to the right of that was the high school. Our, our church was two blocks away, and this was an extraordinary supportive uh, community. That community center, I learned tap dance, rumba, samba. I took ballet. I learned modern dance. We had a big Peruvian loom. I learned how to make rugs on a loom. I learned how to crochet. I took acting classes. I traveled the city during the summer doing uh, theater. And so I actually thought, Everybody grew up like that. I thought everybody had this opportunity. I never called it art. It was just what we did. And I sang and I was in talent shows. And that had an extraordinary uh, impact on my not putting barriers on my art. Like I work with visual artists. I work with dancers. And I, I cross all kinds of lines in art because that's where it was brought up. But then when it came to being a, a writer in my own home, my mother was from Arkansas. Only child. Very hard life. And she did not approve of idleness. So to sit and write in her eyes was to be idle. Mm. So we had a walk-in closet. So I used to put on my coat and pretend I was going outdoors to play, go to the hallway, sneak down to the closet, and all the way in the back of that closet behind all the coats, I had a little table and I had my notebooks and paper. And that's where I would go and write. So it was a really weird thing in public. I was okay to do all of these artistic things, but at home it was seen as an idleness. And I think that's where my own conflicts of accepting myself as an artist came from. You know. Mm. So what was the name of that uh, neighborhood? I lived in Mill Creek, the first urban renewal project in the nation. The Bayshon Community Center was right across the street from my house. I'll never forget it. Extraordinary mm-hmm. childhood. It's interesting. The description of your neighborhood, as you well know, there are a number of historic African-American communities in the St. Louis area that were very self-sufficient and had extraordinary resources. They were isolated from the the, the larger downtown community, but um, amazing institutions, amazing support structure. And I know one thing that's going on in St. Louis right now is that some of those communities are trying to rekindle and rebuild a lot of that infrastructure. And what Mm -hmm. you just described is it's what every kid in the world ought to be exposed to as they grow up. I totally agree. Yeah, we had, you know, and then in those days, your next door neighbor could be a doctor, a lawyer, a laundry woman, a factory yes. worker, but you had a holistic community. Mm-hmm. And people, they looked after each other. Oh my gosh, you couldn't get, 
you couldn't go five blocks, ten blocks from home without somebody calling out your parents' name and, and saying you better be on your best behavior. Or if you weren't on your best behavior, telling you they were going to call your parents by the time you got home, you knew what that meant. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, everybody was your parent. Part two, changing the story. So you have, I would say, probably thousands of stories that you could tell, but I would love to pick your brain and have you tell a story or two that that you think brings it home to mm. things that something that that you'd say, yeah, that that was that was good trouble. That was disruption at its best. <laughs> mm. One comes to mind in 1996. I was teaching in a little town called Evans, Georgia, which is right outside of Augusta. Evans, Georgia was best known for a piece of land that was donated to the city and with the caveat that black people were not to ever step foot on it. The city took that land and turned it into a public park with public funds and put up a sign that said no blacks allowed. And that case went all the way up to the Supreme Court for um, 15 years. That case was fought. I didn't know that when I showed up in Evans, Georgia. And Evans, Georgia had a lot of um, lot of problems. <laughs> so I showed up to teach. They asked me to teach West African poetry. Usually when I show up, there's a big bulletin board with the covers of my books and different things, publicity stuff saying visiting artists coming. Showed up, there was none of that. I talked to the principal and they were supposed to give me a studio and she shows me to a closet off of the library. And she tells me that's my studio. I was like this. This is not right. So I go to my first class and teachers acted like they never knew I was supposed to be there. Everybody was surprised that I showed up. And after a couple of days, I decided I would not teach the curriculum that I had come there to teach. That something was really off. And, and so I started doing something else. And the teachers came to me and asked me what I, so I did. I kept getting these strange reactions. So after a couple of weeks, I had to go home on a Thursday because I was rehearsing for a play I was in. So I came back to Atlanta to do my rehearsals and I had a meeting at the State Arts Council that Monday morning. So I showed up and everybody's looking at me like I died, like there was a funeral and I didn't know about it. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and so I cornered them and said, what is going on? And they pull a newspaper out from up under the desk and it has my picture and across the Columbia Times newspaper, it says, which teaching in our school? And that's me. Oh. <laughs> and I, I was like, oh. And so this had gone out all over that part of South Carolina and Georgia up there around Augusta and Evans. I called my host family that I was living with up there and asked them what was going on. And they told me, I remember Pat Robinson had been running for president about that time. He had already mm. had one campaign. So two of Pat Robinson's campaign people had decided to hold this press conference on that Friday after I left about me being a witch and the children were afraid of me and Satan worship and teaching this West African poetry, these praise poems. Nobody should be praised but God. And so this was proof that I was a devil. And it was just really interesting. And they had a new flyer out for this big uh, press thing that they were gonna do. My, my host family got a copy of it and I asked them to go to the meeting and they did. Well, they were the only black people to show up at the meeting. So the moment they showed up, all of the material, the flyers and all of my books and everything that they were gonna damn with disappeared. 
But they still went on talking about these ungodly people in our schools. I got a call from the school I was teaching at and they were in an uproar. I had to come back up there. It was all this trouble and I needed to come back. And so I called the National Lawyers Association and I talked to them and we talked it over and they they gave me some strategy. I called People for American Way and we talked about it because this had happened to several friends of mine already. Mm. And they told me what to do. So I called them back and I said, OK, this is the situation. Whatever happened up there is about you guys. Couldn't be about me because they don't know me. They're trying to use me as a lightning rod. And I'm not going to do that. And I said, but what you will do is you will hold a press conference. And at that press conference, you will assure that community that I am in no way what these people have said that I am. And I won't say a word. So uh, three days later, I showed up. They had the full board of education. They had the superintendents from the city. And every one of them had to go up to that microphone. And and I sat back in the back. And one by one, all of these white men had to go up to that microphone and sing my praises and the praises of this program. Because I made it very clear. I would sue the people who had the deepest pockets. And they had the deepest pockets. And uh, they sang my praises and it forced a whole new telling of a story. They could not continue with the story that had started. They had to uh, write a new story. So after after that press conference, there was a big meeting at the Arts Council. And the parents from that school showed up and they insisted one by one, 200 of them stood up and insisted that fund that program be fully funded and showed their support for me. And as a result, that program was funded for three years straight, first time ever. The parents of that community made it very clear that this was not who they were, and that newspapers ran over 75 letters to the editor. People started telling on each other which Republicans had supported this and how they expected to use it to, to, to influence the Board of Education race. But the greatest lesson that I learned, that Thursday when I left to go to Atlanta, I had finished my um, sixth grade class and a little girl, little black girl in that class asked the teacher if she could walk me to my car. And she did. She walked me to my car. And as I was getting in, she said, Miss Lovelace, you're always who you are, aren't you? And I said, well, yeah, I pretty much don't know how to be anybody else. She said, um, she said, I really like that. She said, but Miss Lovelace, you don't know where you are. And closed the door and walked away. And after this was all over with, and I went back to say goodbye to the children, she came up to me afterwards and she said, Miss Lovelace, do you understand what I was saying to you? And I said, I totally do understand what you said, dear. I totally understand. She said, think about it, Miss Lovelace. I have to live here. And she walked away. And I never forgot the lesson of that. I never forgot the lesson of standing up to bullies, not getting into the stories people are telling about you. Because one of the things that they advised me at the moment that you try to speak to that story, all it's going to do is keep that story spinning. So I would never address it. And I made them tell a new story. Yes. And I forced them to write a new story. And I and uh, it caused profound change in that community. That school. I mean, those people were voted out. There was, there was it, it was a ripple effect that went went on and on beyond them. When I would go to Gainesville, Georgia and other little towns around there. People knew who I was. <laughs> it was like, oh, okay. Because they felt like they'd been terrorized and bullied by these people for so long. And this was the first time that someone had actually put mm. them in their place. Yes. So here's a follow-up question. And that is, so there's two 
two strategies here. One of them is understanding that the system in, in which the school operates in, the community operates in, even the parents have to function in, is one of a lot of self-interest and a lot of power that is vested in people that are used to having their way. And so one strategy was is to call that question and say, I understand what's important to you and you don't want to risk that. So I need for you to do this. That's That was one strategy. But the other one is that the proof in the pudding was those kids loved you and cared oh. about you. And those parents were willing to say, I don't care about any politics here. This is an important thing in my child's life. Th- those children, and I have to say those children did love me. They, it, 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 it got so bad that the right-wing radio stations were actually doing call-in programs about me. And my students were the ones calling in. And they were very proud of themselves when they saw me and say, Miss Lovelace, I called and I told them, do you know Miss Lovelace? Because I do. And if you don't know Miss Lovelace, you shouldn't be talking about her. So, yeah, those kids were very adamant because I I was a great teacher. I really was. I, I could take any audience and teaching them how to explore their creative selves and tell their own stories. That was what I was good at. And. I had worked in every little small white town in the South you can think of. My typical town that I worked in was two to 3,000 people with a 0.5% black population. So all these little towns started to calling them going, ooh, y'all really got the wrong person. <laughs> You're just really not going to work with Alice. I don't, they just picked the wrong person. And I found out they had tried it a year before with a dancer. And had gotten some success. And I guess that's why they thought they could come after me. They thought I was just an isolated black woman up in this white community all by myself. But you build allies wherever you can. And teachers and students have always been my greatest allies. Part three, the canaries in the mine. And one of the things that brings to mind is that, I mean, we're talking about Georgia, the shift in the power dynamic that is taking place is just basically an exponential increase of more and more people recognizing, I have a voice, I have an idea, I have power in in this system, not alone, but together, for sure. I know you did a lot of this solo, and which is a challenge, and uh, there's more and more people in the parade now. Yeah. The schools are such a battlefront. Even when I would visit international, the first places I go are schools. Because children are like the canary in the mine. If there's an issue, if there's something wrong, it is going to show up first there in the schools. You're going to see it. You're going to see it in the curriculum. You're going to see it in the approach and attitudes of the teachers, what the teachers talk about in the lounge when they're on break and they think no one's listening. And young people are a lot more honest. So when I would ask them a question, they would actually lay the truth on me. So they were always educating me. And, And you could see the troubles brewing. A lot of the problems we're having now, they, they were signaled by our yeah. educational system. Yeah. The dropping of history and the dropping of geography from our schools. The, this everybody is a winner. It was just, it's, yeah, it's been going on for years. And I think that young people, that's why this election was so exciting to see all of the young people, 17-year-olds, extraordinary campaign here in Georgia to register 17-year-olds over 800,000 teenagers were registered to wow. vote. And because if you were 17, but you turned 18 by the date of the election, mm-hmm. you could cast your vote. And 
I, I was just, it was just so heartwarming for me to see all these young people taking their power. Yes, yeah. absolutely. So here we are in this odd world that in many ways, what you just described, which is Georgia is a place that has fault lines for a long time. Mm-hmm. And we all know if there's fault lines, they're going to crack and they're going to spread and stuff's going to happen one way or the other. And it's happening. This pandemic is another stress test, right? Yes. It's, it's pointing out where the wounds already are that, that need healing. It's emphasizing places that have had historic problems, just making them more obvious so people can't avoid them. And one of the things that I think, and I'd just like to know what you think, is if the story going forward has any chance of actually marshalling the the better angels of people in our community, there is going to need to be not only a political reckoning, but a cultural reckoning. And I'm just wondering what is the job going forward? When I look at the arts exchange, that, that's a part of what that struggle was about. We were the only black run, own our own facility, every penny of it. We're the only one in the in the state of Georgia that I know of. Wow. And so it's very important to preserve that as a place where black artists are nurtured and, and can present, but also where the fuller and larger community is welcomed in to help us celebrate and be a part of that. I do believe in controlling your own story. Mm. And I think part of controlling your own story, if you want to see a change, is you don't use the language of your oppressor to mm-hmm. tell your story. Mm-hmm. And so we have to come up with the language to tell our own story, and we have to come up with the, the faith in ourselves to tell our own stories without referencing them. So. A few things like, I never say slaves. I say those who were enslaved. And I even teach this to performing artists because I have a lot of artists who do stories and I talk about the power of that word and the backlash of it. You think you're saying one thing, but the power invested in the word actually translates to the audience totally different. Mm -hmm. I never say the word master. I say those who would be masters or those who fashion themselves as masters. Because I have to put them in of my cultural context, not reference them in their cultural context. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. it's taking back those cultural frames. I never talked about globalism because I didn't think it was an evil thing. So things that you don't believe in, you shouldn't repeat. And the words of your oppressors, you shouldn't repeat. And we have to tell our own stories and build powerful stories. One of the things that I love here in Atlanta is also the young people. They are coming out of the woodworks, starting arts organizations, starting their own coalitions of artists. There's just an explosion here. Someone sent me a list recently, and it had over 200 black organizations. And I can remember a time when there were like three of us in the entire city. And it was just so, yes, this is how you do it. You own your culture, you possess it, and then that is what you put out into the world. And you don't accept anybody else's variation on you. And you don't accept anyone else's story about you. You simply don't accept it. That's also what I learned from Evans, the power of that silence of not repeating what well, they said this and this is what I think. Never reference them. This is not about them. It's mm-hmm. about telling that new story, mm-hmm. turning over that new page, creating that new path forward. So in many ways, yeah, if you think of it as as oxygen, if someone owns the oxygen tank <laughs> and all you're doing is rebreathing and then recycling, you, you can't help but end up in a toxic environment. So you, you're going to have to get some new plants and trees and create some new oxygen. You may have to struggle for breath for a little while there until you get that new oxygen, but <laughs> yes. you have to have new oxygen is coming. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yes. 
part four, a little respect. I know you are a, a teacher, not by vocation or profession, but as a soul, a teaching soul. And, and I know that you pay a lot of attention to those young people coming up. And obviously, we don't have the five months that it would take for you to pass on all your wisdom. But for young people who would love to follow in your path and make the kind of good trouble that you do, you pass on a few things that, that you think are particularly important. I can only speak to the practices that informed me, which came out of many years of training and having to self-reflect. When I go into a classroom to teach, I'm very clearly the teacher. I do not attempt to create a cult of personality. So I never use my own work and I never use myself as the point of excellence because I don't want them to admire me. I want them to admire the work they create coming out of themselves. So my emphasis is always on the students. When I walk into a classroom, the first thing I say to my class is I ask permission to be there. And often the teachers don't understand that. But I will say to the students, this is your community and I am an interloper and other adults have made a decision that I should be here. But the rightful decision makers are you because you are the one who have the power to make this a success or to make it a failure. So I always ask their permission and they are so struck by that. And it takes them a minute to think I'm really. But then once I get their permission, they give themselves over totally to it because it's their idea. And so often the kids that are labeled disruptive or non-achievers are some of my highest achievers mm. because in order to get respect, you have to give respect. And I don't think mm. people give young people enough respect. Okay. They don't understand that just because you're older, you don't automatically get respect. It's a two-way street. I also respect the culture of the classroom. So the first thing I do, I look at the bulletin boards. I look at all the work the kids are doing. I go through their textbooks and I try to make sure that whatever I'm teaching directly connects to what's happening in their life in that classroom. Mm -hmm. So that it lifts up some piece of learning there that they could actually use and employ. I don't bring politics to children. Children are not tools of politics. So I don't bring politics into the classroom. And I learned that from two experiences. The first time that I, it wasn't politics, but I talked about being black. And I was in a predominantly white, uh, as usual, community, but there were a few black kids there. And as I spoke, I looked at the faces of the couple of black kids who were in there and the pain on their faces. And I could immediately see that this is something that's used against them so much. And I totally backed off and I never did that again. But what I would do was offer myself so they could ask me questions about myself. Why is your hair like that? Because I'm an African person. My hair grows inward towards my skull. Why? Because it would protect my skull from the sun and kept me from getting brain damage. That's why we have kinky hair. And I would talk about loving myself and loving my own hair. And then the difference in those children would be this smile is like, yes. And, and and it taught me to never try to politicize a situation with children. Uh, and if I wanted to offer an example, it was myself that was the example. The other thing that I learned is that quite often you have to put the teacher out of the classroom. Teachers believe they control the classroom and they really don't. So I would give these instructions. We'd go through the class. And my last words to my students always before they start writing is that everything I've said is absolutely up to you, whether you accept it or not. 
Say, when you pick up that piece of paper, you are the writer, you are the owner of it. And if you decide to do something different, doesn't matter because that's your power. And you should always play to your power. And the teachers would have a fit. And occasionally I would see teachers going around the room and they'd pick up a student's work and they'd say, that's not what Miss LaVey's told you to do. And they'd ball the paper up and throw it in the trash can. So mm. I'd say, oh, why don't you go get me a cup of coffee? And I'd send the teacher out and I'd go to the trash can, pull the work out, smooth it out, put it on the student's desk. And I'd go, oh, I really like that line. I want you... I, you need to go ahead and finish that and unpack that line for me because I want to know where this is going. And I had to put the power back into that child's hand. And mm -hmm. I, I don't think teachers understand how demoralizing they can be at times. Mm -hmm. That if they've got a bad student, it's usually because they've cast that student in a way and they fixed it in their mind and they can't see another way for the student to be. Talk about recognizing their power. It's in this all-white school, no black students, and I'm teaching a class that's got all the football players. I'm teaching poetry, and you can about imagine how well these football players. So every time I go to talk, I notice the kids look over to this one guy. So I stopped the class. I got them busy, and I asked him to go outside. And I stood outside with him. I said, "Okay, look, I recognize who has the power in that room, and that power is yours." And he was like, "No, I said, oh no, that power is yours." And so he told me he was the captain of the football team. I said, okay. I said, okay, so this is my deal. All I'm asking for is a chance. And I want you to listen and I want you to respond. And if you find this beneficial to you, I want you to respond in the affirmative and let them know that you find this beneficial. I said, but I can't do this without you. Mm -hmm. So we went back into the classroom and I start talking. And when I would say something, he would say, yeah, Miss Lovelace, that's right. And all of a sudden, the kids are like, he did that a couple of times and everything, total everything shifted. Entire room shifted, our work shifted, our ability to get deep shifted, and we were really successful. So I also would say to them, you, you have to honor the power that young people have. And you have to understand where that power is vested and how to use that power to get good things for them. Yeah, Alice, in everything that you just described, you could just take that and you could say, here's some uh, principles for good organizing in a community. And I can also say that all those lessons were learned by me in my work in the prison system. Mm. The, the guy in the class who's everybody looks to, it's a power game. And so uh, unless you get real clear about where power is and who owns what, one of the things that, that I'll never forget is prisoners in a class maybe learning how to draw and, and the teacher says, you know, draw this thing. And then the teacher might say, today we're, you get to choose. You, you pick anything in this whole class. And I'll never forget when a prisoner looked up at the teacher. I was in the classroom and picked up his chair and threw it against the wall. Oh, said, you're setting me up. Oh, I know there's a wrong answer here and okay. I am not going to be put in that position. Right. Yeah. And what that meant was they're so used to being set up in so many different ways. And that moment, I learned that the imagination is a delicate thing and it can be hijacked by systems oh, and and toxic culture. And one of the jobs sometimes in the classroom is to just ease that imaginative muscle into a better shape so that feel a little bit more confident that they could take responsibility for whatever shows up in their imagination. It, it's a powerful thing. 
Do you know what was my most difficult classes with that, who ascribed to that ideology? Were the gifted classes. Mm. And I used to, I hated to teach gifted classes. So I would negotiate with the schools because they would usually bring me in for the gifted classes. And I would only teach gifted classes if they allowed me to teach an equal number of remedial classes. Because remedial students were actually much more creative and free thinkers. Mm-hmm. And I, and the reason I didn't like gifted classes was because of that. You'd say, the, the, it's wide open. They'd go, what's the rubric? There is no rubric for grade. How many similes do I have to use? There is no such thing. What's the subject matter? There is no subject matter. You choose it. They couldn't deal with it. They needed all of these criteria set by the teacher, like you mm-hmm. said, so they wouldn't feel set up so they could get that A or get that. And it was very frustrating for them because I wouldn't give it to them. And I always thought that was the greatest gift I ever gave the gifted students was to understand that sometimes you have to fly on your own. Yeah, you do. You do. Absolutely. Well, you've been flying on your own for quite a while, Alice. And I know that that, uh, we could have many conversations that could go on a long ways. It's an honor and a privilege to have spent two days in conversation with you. I'm telling you. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, for being on my show welcome. and for having me on yours. <laughs> Absolutely. I will also put a link, you know, to your show on my show and b- vice for back and forth. Build a community. I, yeah, for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Thanks, Bill. Uh, Alice, stay well. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Story, story, story. And that brings an end to this hopefully peacefully destructive episode of Change the Story, Change the World, which is a production of the Center for the Study of Art and Community. And just so you know, we do a lot more than podcasts, training, research, publishing, to name a few. So check us out at www.artandcommunity.com. And thanks to all of you for tuning in. And finally, thanks to the incomparable Judy Munson for our theme song and soundscape. And for all of us at the center, I'm Bill Cleveland. Adios.